0: this is the education gadfly show
1: and we're going to need lysol wipes because those are actually proven to be effective not when ingested but when wiping surfaces what does gadfly
2: say? Hey, this is your host mike patrulli of the thomas b fordham institute here at the education gadfly show and online at fordham now please welcome my special guest for this week noelle ellerson ing noelle welcome back to the show
1: Good morning, Michael. Good to be here. Always happy to sit down and chit-chat with you on a variety of things, and to do so during this COVID pandemic, I'm sure we'll have some great thoughts today.
2: I think we will. For those that don't know, though you should know, Noelle is the Associate Executive Director of Advocacy and Governance at AASA, otherwise known as the School Superintendents Association. Also joining us this week, as always, David Griffith. David, welcome back to the show.
0: Hey, Mike. Good, Good to be here. See you. (laughs) <laughs> good to, good to hear
2: you. We were just chit chatting about our weekends and uh we, we didn't have them.
0: Out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: Who who can tell? What's the weekend, what's the day, what's what uh, nobody has any idea. It's all blending in together uh, for all of us there. And Noel, we are super excited to have you on the show with us. Noel's association of is, of course, the, the main association for, as we said, the school superintendents, but really for the school s- districts. You basically are the, the local school district association, these institutions that are on the front lines of this pandemic, at least when it comes to educating our kids. You know, we have been having a lot of back and forth on Twitter about what uh, we can be mm-hmm. expecting when... When kids return to school in the fall, if that is in fact what does happen in terms of social distancing and all the rest. So let's talk about it on this week's Ed Reform Update. All right, Noel. So, first of all, before we get to next fall, let's talk about right now. From your perspective and your members all over the country, uh, you know, school districts, big and small. How are things going? How are they feeling about this abrupt switch to remote learning and trying to get kids fed and otherwise served at this crazy time? How How do you think it's going out there?
1: I think it's going as well as it can. And I think I would be remiss if I didn't own that. A part of my response, people are going to think, well, that's what she has to say. That's what her job requires her to say. She's speaking on behalf of the superintendents. But I I would stand by that sentiment because they're doing the best that they can. But the big caveat here is the best that they can is nowhere near what they would have been doing if the school year hadn't been disrupted. And the best that they can do right now is different than what they did a week ago and different from what they will do next week. Because while we've all aged five years in the past two months, it's only been seven weeks, at least from where I sit here in ASA with Arlington schools and Northern Virginia schools. Seven weeks is both a lifetime, but also just a drop in the bucket in terms of how long it is for a child's K-12 experience and within a school year. So they're doing well. But I think the biggest thing to note about this week and where they are is that this is starting to feel, for lack of a better word, like a normal. And so Mm -hmm. as much as we have to have the long-term conversation about what this normal does to a child's well-being and their mental health and their emotional health and educational opportunity, there's something to be said for the idea that, okay, this has become a little bit more normal. We have an idea of how to get through the days. We have an idea of what to expect. But doing the best that they can and feeling good about what they're doing while still acknowledging that they want to do more and they want to do better. And that is, without hesitation, what I'm hearing from the superintendents.
2: All right. Well, it is amazing. Look, human beings, we we are incredibly adaptable. And you're right. I mean, we yearn to have some sense of routine and normalcy. And I certainly see that in our own home here with my two Mm -hmm. boys. They're getting used to this new sense of school. Um, not that they love every aspect of it. And of course, there's big chunks that are missing. And we see this in the news as well. You know, all those seniors that are missing out on on their big milestones and the proms and the graduations and spring sports and all the rest. Those are things that can't be put on Zoom very easily, though, you know, some of the courses can be. All right. So let, let's talk about the fall, Noel. This is something mm-hmm. that uh, many of us have been writing about it, talking about. It is going to be so challenging, uh, not only because A bunch of kids are are losing out on learning right now. The kids who maybe are not able to do distance learning very effectively. Kids without internet access, certainly also the youngest kids. But the other big challenge when we come back this fall is that we Are possibly going to be told by the public health people that we have to do social distancing, right? We Mm -hmm. see this happening Mm -hmm. in schools in Denmark right now that are reopening, for example, where they're trying to make sure kids are, are spread out when they're in the classroom and that they come into contact with as few kids as possible throughout their day. We've all been scratching our heads. What the heck does that mean? When you think about crowded school hallways, you think about an elementary school lunchroom, or you think about high school football games. So what are you and your members thinking about this, if if this is a real possibility this fall that that you're going to be able to reopen, but only under very different conditions?
1: The first thing to think about is that there's pressures on the need to open the schools. It's about maintaining the children's instructional opportunity and learning and academic development. It's about restoring a sense of order and normal for communities in general. And quite honestly, if anything, this pandemic and the school closures have shown how much schools are just as much about preparing the next generation of workers as they are making this current generation possible by providing the daycare function. And so I think that pressure to open in the fall around the economic backbone will be much larger than it is right now, in part because COVID will ideally have gotten a little bit better under control or will flatten the curve. But all those variables will go into, I think, rightfully putting more pressure on how to open schools in the fall. It's absolutely going to vary state by state because we saw that COVID is impacting states in different timelines and in different rates. Even just getting kids to school is going to require some rethinking because, Mike, do your kids go to school on a bus or do they walk?
2: They go on a bus. They sure do. They got across cross so, a, a big avenue, so they get <laughs> they on that bus. bus.
1: Did your kids sit six feet from each other on that bus?
2: <laughs> no, indeed, they did not. So
1: uh, that becomes a question. And even before we talk about getting to school, one of the big concerns is, well, Unless a school is sitting on a lot of unused space, there's just not going to be enough space to do the type of essentially class size reduction that we're essentially talking about to make this feasible. Do they have X number of additional classrooms so they can spread the kids out? And if that answer is no, then you could think through okay, do we do alternate attendance days where kids go Monday, Wednesday, Friday one week and Tuesday, Thursday the other week? Or do you go to half days where Half the kids go in the morning, half the kids go in the afternoon. These are things to think through logically, but if we're talking about how in the fall we're going to have even more pressure to have schools open to bolster the economy, half-day schools or half-time schools don't solve most of that issue because you still have half the day or half the time where these kids aren't in a learning setting. You see that you need to think about all the congregate settings within a school day. We think our children are in one classroom, but as you think about it, how do they even get into the building? Yes, this March, we passed the first March in how many years without a school shooting, but how many of our schools have very secure premises with only one or two main entrances open for children to come into the school? If you're going to talk about social distancing, we need to have a very real conversation about the number of entrances that can be available to help minimize spread. But where do you then have the conversation about security of the general premises of the school if you're going to now have 8 to 10 entrances instead of 2 for student flow in the name of COVID prevention and COVID suppression? How do you move them through the hallway? I taught high school special ed, did some student teaching with some kids, elementary student kids, and try as I might, six feet apart is really hard. Now, I understand and fully expect that our children can and do amazing things, especially when they're well-versed and they understand that this is the new norm. But are you going to then limit your classes to one classroom in each hallway at a time because very few hallways are wider than six feet apart. How do you do lunch, gazette, that all the non-traditional subjects, for lack of a better word? Do you now do those settings in the regular classroom? Okay, well that changes the pattern of the day. That might change the schedule of the teachers, parameters of the, the contracts that they might have in terms of how many preps do they have, what do the staffing patterns look like, and then we have to talk about how are you maintaining sanitary standards. So kids presumably are going to need to wash their hands every hour or two. Well, outside of kindergarten and first grade, it's very rare for classrooms to have a sink in their room. So you're going to have to use bathroom sinks. Within those bathrooms where there are multiple sinks, very often they are closer than six feet. So you're probably cutting your sink capacity in half all of this has direct implications for the amount of staff you're going to need on hand to just help enforce these standard procedures.
2: Wow, Noel, it is such a long list of things to think about. And so some people have started to say, look, is this just impossible? Like, you know, should we just keep the schools closed if we're asking them to do basically the impossible? Or maybe are we thinking about this wrong? Is is it not so much that if a kid comes to school sick, they don't know it, there's no way to keep them from infecting some of their classmates. Mm -hmm, mm But maybe the goal is to keep that spread from happening beyond one classroom so that you only have to, once you figure out that this has happened, quarantine one classroom full of kids and their teacher rather than a whole school full of kids and all of their mm-hmm. te- I mean, is that the way to think about it? that? it? Uh, that we really just want to make sure that kids are, you know, for next year, let's say, they are only going to be around another group of 25 other kids and we got to make that, that's the design challenge. Is that a better way to think about it? I mean, David, because it just does seem crazy to think that first graders are going to keep six feet apart from each other. You need huge classrooms, first of all, and then you'd also just need to rewire the way six-year-olds behave, right?
0: Yeah, I've been pitching one day a week. Seriously, though, for all the reasons you just described, I cannot imagine a classroom that is socially distanced with more than about five kids in it. I think about the level of supervision that would be required for things like the hall, right? Maybe the teachers can move instead of the kids. I mean, I think there's ways you can get creative with this. I don't know how this drives with union contracts, but you know, maybe we can have six days of school, since nobody has weekends anymore, I mean, and, and rotate the staff somehow. I think there's some creative stuff, but at the end of the day, it just strikes me that you can't have all the kids in the building at the same time, or anything close to it. And I so I guess I've just been pitching the importance of at least sort of some contact once a week to kind of give kids a push and parents a push. That, that, yeah. that one is so much more than zero.
2: Right, and that solves some problems. It's probably better for the public health folks, but it doesn't help, as Noelle said, the sort of daycare problem, right? Especially for little kids, you know, you can't leave a six-year-old at home by themselves.
0: And Mike, you know, as Noah was talking, I was starting to add to her list, right? I mean, we know that COVID lingers on surfaces. I mean, it's it's estimated that it stays on paper for like three or four days, potentially. Or, I mean, I'm not an expert in these things, but we know it doesn't just immediately disappear. So even if the kids are distanced, if you're switching classrooms, effectively, you've got a kid coming out and sitting in a desk <laughs> that another kid was just sitting in a few minutes ago and you know, drooling all over or whatever. I find it hard to believe that there's any way to prevent some sort of contamination there.
1: This is where the naive portion of my personality comes out, though naive Noel, because this does seem impossible, but it's a challenge that we have to have them try to answer because the idea of sending our children to school one day a week, while well, so reasonable and rational for everything I just outlined and everything you said, it's not functional or sustainable when you think about the economy, the social constructs, the way children have been grown and raised. So it makes me start to think about, well, what do, what do these alternatives look like? So do we go to a blended model where you think about, well, some kids who are able to do virtual well can continue to do virtual. This gets into something Mike and I were talking about, though, because then it becomes an equity question because who can do virtual well? So I I think there needs to be rightfully pressure on ways to think through getting back to a traditional school setting, if only so that we can restore some of those social norms and get the economy back on track while getting learning up, while understanding that even as we rush to get back to those norms, it's going to look drastically different this is where there's an overlap between what I do and my husband does because he works for Shake Shack. You open up that restaurant and they're doing curbside right now, but it's going to look drastically different. You need a different staffing pattern just in cleaning staff alone because someone's going to have to go through and we're going to need Lysol wipes because those are actually proven to be effective not when ingested, but when wiping surfaces. But you need someone to do that <laughs> and you need someone to, to maintain that cleanliness. And we have to have no qualms about the fact that we need to incur the cost of not only those cleaning materials that are compliant with the science-driven recommendation, but also the staff who can help monitor in the halls. And that might seem crazy, but I think that's an easier price to pay than the mm-hmm. idea of assuming people can continue to stay home, because that's not viable.
0: So yeah. let me just push on that a little bit. We've had similar points in our email chains internally. I would personally co-sign on starting with the kids who are three grade levels or two grade levels behind and presumably are disproportionately affected by this, but that strikes me as politically not impossible, but a heavy lift.
1: We're all in theory equally important to advocate for our students but are those the students whose parents are going to be advocating for them to be in there or more more to the point where are the parents who are going to advocate if their children are the ones who are identified as able to stay home you have to think about the equity of those resources as well
2: well, so many important questions. Few answers at this point. You know, I really feel like we're going to need to push the public health people, I think, to, to give clear guidance on what the goal is here. Is the goal to keep it from being uh, unlikely that any given kid is going to infect any other given kid? Or is it just that we want to be able to lock it down for a smaller number of people if, if there is a spread here. Because that first goal just does continue to seem impossible. We got to get some guidance on that. And then we got to have creative thinking. And look, I think we're gonna have some school systems, some charter schools, private schools are all going to have a chance to try some different options here and see what works. I think we're all, all in agreement that getting the... Kids for whom distance learning works least well, the youngest kids, the kids who are maybe in the neediest situations, back in there as soon as possible is going to be critical. But whew, well, so many things to think about. Let's keep the conversation going because uh, we're all going to need to have some creative problem solving best we can.
1: Sounds like a plan. Always good to start a conversation with you guys. I look forward to continuing it.
2: All right, great. So again, thank you, Noel Ellerson Ng, Associate Executive Director of Advocacy and Governance at AASA. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. <laughs> Welcome back to the show.
3: (laughs) Thanks, Mike. Glad to be here, as always. It
2: is daunting thinking about how schools are going to have to look differently this fall if they are allowed to open. Man, so many things. It's really crazy. Although, David's saying one day a week for everybody or... People, who are, yeah. more people are saying, you know, half the kids on one day, half the kids on the other. Right. I, I don't know. As a teacher, you probably wouldn't have minded that so much, right? I, I know.
3: I, 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 re- I know. I like that idea, right? I mean, even though it supposedly doesn't help all that much, smaller class sizes, teachers love them. I know I did.
2: Yeah. Of course, big question. Does that actually help parents get back to work? We are not going to be COVID 100% of the time. So let's talk about what else is going on out there. What you got for us this week on the research front?
3: Yeah, we um, found this cool article in Education Researcher. It's an understudied topic, and it's about how social studies teachers perceive the credibility of news sources. And we thought, you know, bias in the news media gets a lot of attention now. And the crux of the study is essentially to determine whether teachers' self-reported political identification affects which news sources they present to students as credible. And then they also do a section where they just kind of figure out how teachers define media credibility to begin with you know we're talking a lot about history and civics and all these things so presumably it's good to understand how teachers are teaching kids to be wise consumers of news so that's sort of you know why why we care i think <laughs> the first thing i wanted to just talk about real quickly is that it has an incredibly low response rate and this is a problem but i think they kind of go through you know what they did they they try to basically oversample conservative teachers because we know that the teaching force tends to lean left. So they used a 2016 election map. They reached out to 11 state ed departments, four red states, one purple state, and one in the big blue state of New York. They had emails from about 61,000 teachers that they reached out to. How many do you think opened it? This is just a random email survey. I'm curious what you guys think.
0: Less than
2: a thousand.
3: Uh, close thirteen hundred opened it. Hey, that's pretty uh, good.
2: Wow, David, good guess. <laughs> and yeah, then, was
3: it? Yeah, then you had about a thousand sixty five actually completed enough of it, so that is a one point seven five percent response rate. Okay, which is you know rough. They also have a decent chunk of missing data for key questions. They have low numbers of teachers of color responding. I mean, there is a pretty lengthy limitation section. So I kind of think of this as more exploratory analysis, and especially since they make the very good point that social studies teachers haven't been extensively surveyed in over 20 years, much less on this particular topic. That's a great um, so,
0: point, Amber, by the way.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, right? We, we, <laughs> we should
0: think about that, yeah.
3: Right, we don't, we, we don't have a high bar here for what to compare this to, and, and they tried. So, hey, let's, let's move on to what they actually found. They asked teachers to rate the credibility and the ideological perspective of 13 common news sources. In a nutshell, they subtract the teacher's ideological self-rating from their rating for each source, and they took the absolute value to create a zero to six measure of ideological distance. So what that means is a score of six represents the perceived alignment between the respondent's ideology and that of the news source, and six means that both those things completely lined up. So the key finding is that teachers identifying as quote "very conservative rated what news source as most credible.
0: I feel a trap.
3: Well, it's not a trap at all. What
0: do you think? All right, I'm going to mm. Mike, you go first. Yes, <laughs> well, the obvious one Fox News. I yes. think that's the trap. Did they really?
3: Oh they did, they did, they did. Oh uh, dear. The only other news source that received an above average credibility rating for teachers who self identified as very conservative were the BBC and the Wall Street Journal. By a similar token, those teachers identifying as very liberal gave Fox News the lowest credibility rating among all the news sources, but they gave all the other sources an above average credibility rating. So conservative teachers find most news sources not credible and liberal teachers find most sources credible. Liberals' highest credibility rating goes to which news source? Another little guess here.
0: Probably the Times. Uh, David, it's called the failing New York Times. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) Yeah, I'm still getting over that initial finding. Um. Uh,
3: It's NPR for the Liberals. NPR Uh, for the Liberals. Oh, well. All right. The widest gaps between liberal and conservative teachers' evaluations of media credibility are between the New York Times, CNN, and Fox News. Moreover, their, their regression models found an inverse relationship whereby a teacher who perceives complete ideological agreement with a given source will likely rate that source as credible. And then they have this section, which was kind of interesting, where they try to dig into, okay, how are teachers defining credible? Because I think that that's obviously influencing how they're rating these sources. I didn't find this part... Too compelling, Um, but they have two buckets of definitions where they just sort of lumped all the definitions. One was a definition of static, and they basically coded that as meaning it was unbiased, it was just the facts, or the story presented all sides of an issue. And then the other bucket was a dynamic definition, and that basically meant that you followed the processes of journalism, meaning you verified your sources, you corroborated your source material, you checked the facts. And then when they looked at those two definitions, they found that if teachers sort of gravitated more towards that journalistic norm definition, they were less swayed by political bias when they were judging a news source. So that's interesting. I don't know. What's it all mean? I mean, they say one takeaway is like the fact is, you know, if we believe these survey results, then, you know, you could be in a classroom where a teacher would describe the same news source as credible or not credible, depending on which classroom you found yourself in and it's, that we need to probably know, do a better job of describing what good journalism really means
0: <laughs> and also so, what good teaching really means yes there you go that's well,
2: it oh, this is a real easy one huh amber we, <laughs> we only have to you know debate uh what, what good journalism is what good teaching is uh what's politicized right. and what's not yeah hmm. yeah yeah I don't know. David. I mean, I mean, you know, it, I, I mean, Mike.
0: I can't hold my tongue on this one. I'm sorry. It, there are it. there is fairly credible statistical evidence that older Americans in places that watched Sean Hannity were more likely to die from COVID <laughs> as a result of Fox News's coverage of this disease. Oh my goodness! It is not credible to put Fox oh. News on the same. It is false equivalence to put Fox News alongside the New York Times or frankly even NBC. There is a well, distinction me, with a difference. Let me add. Ask- I say that acknowledge- I say that acknowledging <laughs> that there is some liberal bias in the mainstream media, but I'm sorry there are some facts and there are things that are lies. There is simply no way for me to discuss this in a neutral fashion. Facts are not, you know, there are no liberal facts and conservative facts. Uh there are, there are facts. And liberals and conservatives can choose how to interact with those facts. But uh, frankly, I got to be honest. I think it's it's shameful if that is really the way kids are being taught to consume media.
3: So the one thing I'll say about the study, ask me how um, I really feel. Yeah, I know. One thing I'll (laughs) say about the study, David, as a researcher, I'll let you put the researcher hat back on and not. Not the other hat. Um, is that they don't? I had my code. researcher hat. All right. Mm-hmm. So they, well, they don't code whether it's like which program it is on the mm-hmm. you know on these various news sources, whether it's a punditry sort of you know program or this actually supposed to be a news program. So that probably would have been helpful right. context for, for the respondent. But go ahead, Mike.
2: Yeah. Well, look, that's a a good point, and that's what makes it tricky. Is that the cable TV programs, especially, have gone into this model where you know for most of them their nighttime programs are basically opinion shows. And then mm-hmm. they've got, you know, some sort of news programming during the day. And I think a lot of media critics have said that Fox News during the day is, is you know, more responsible and, you know, not so different from some of the other out, uh, outlets, you know, versus you know, where you see the huge differences are at night. Uh, But of course, you know, CNN is now opinion at night as well, right? And and of course, newspapers have always had this model where they have, and and most of the major newspapers have always leaned left in opinion. Uh, You know, look, I'm I'm glad that you acknowledge, David, that there is media bias is a real thing uh, in the news side, you know, and of course, we talk about that here and we see it, polls that get treated as news or how different subjects are treated. But But I also, I understand there's definitely been some evidence that Fox in particular, especially the opinion uh, side of the house, that people who consume that a lot, that there's been some solid studies showing that they, you know, as you say, have have some factually incorrect information coming at them, right? I I mean, mean, COVID is one example. Well, it's other, not, other let's not, I mean, well.
0: look, that's fair, Mike. I've calmed myself over here. You look, and, and I agree with what you said. We work in education. It is not a uh, a great topic when it comes to the mainstream media. The mainstream media thinks is unbiased when it comes to education, right? But if you actually, if you are familiar with education research, you know, it, in an article, uh, some assumption um, about, uh, you know, what public education means what it is, and, and the sort of bounds of the debate are fundamentally liberal and frankly a little close-minded sometimes and that I think that does extend all the way up to the times. It is a matter of degree, which makes it difficult to make any sort of sweeping statements. All right, well, David, Amber, we could obviously I go on like you. this forever. And, <laughs> and, and,
3: and <laughs> I didn't get to say how much I and, love and more income should.
2: at night. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh, Amber, stop, stop. <laughs> <laughs> we could keep going on forever. Uh, when we are all back together again someday, we should do so. But till then, I'm David Griffith, and I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gap Life Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at FordhamInstitute.org.